Okay, I can tell you uh, one thing is that I've looked at the plans for the new worship center, and you'll be thankful to know there's no escalators in the new worship center. Uh, this video begs the question, humorously I might add, is the fact that why didn't they realize that the escalator had simply just turned into a staircase? It's been said, however, that you know the obscure... Uh, we see eventually the completely obvious seems to take a little bit longer. And what was obvious in this instance is that these individuals were just a few steps from reaching their destination. The question for us today is, will we take the steps necessary in order for us to achieve our squad goals? If we simplify it, it really comes down to the fact that in the journey of life, there's only two types of steps that we ever take. They're either first steps or their next steps. What the video makes clear is that we have no chance of reaching our destination by remaining stationary. Pastor Mike last week, he referenced the poem from Robert Frost, The Two Roads, and he encouraged us to take the road less traveled. But if we're travelers on this journey, the people that we come across are just like everybody that's here, everybody that we come in contact with, they need to take a first step to begin a journey and then a next step to continue it. Ultimately, it's a succession of steps that will allow us to walk and our walk will make sure that we arrive. When we walk, we travel and according to scripture, there are three types of travelers that exist in the world. There is the curbside individual, the backslide, and the full stride. And two of those three are not going anywhere. The one that's on the side and the one that slides. They refuse to walk and instead they live their life as if they're stuck on an escalator. If we take a moment to reflect on their rationale to try to determine, there's really only two reasons why people don't take the first step and begin to walk. The first individual, those that are on the curbside, well, that represents the non-believer. And those are individuals that they really don't know what they're capable of. They're ignorant to the possibility. There's a term, it's relatively new, but it's an old concept, and it's called critical realism. And critical realism states this. It is the recognition that no matter how much we know, we don't know everything there is to know. According to a researcher, Rolf Smith, children ask 125 probing questions a day. I'm sure there's mothers out there that can attest to that and really believe that they ask more than 125 a day. Well, they also researched and found out that adults only ask six probing questions a day. Somewhere along the course of our life, from childhood to adulthood, we stop asking questions and we start making assumptions. But when I survey the scripture, it seems to me that most miracles occur to people that make the fewest assumptions. You know, Joshua didn't assume that the sun couldn't stand still. Elisha didn't assume that an axe head couldn't float. Mary didn't assume that virgins don't get pregnant. And Peter did not assume that he couldn't walk on water. The parallel is clear. Those who don't know God don't know what God's capable of. But we do know. As Christ fathers, we do know and we have an obligation to share the truth. And the truth comes in Mark 10, 27, when Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But not with God, all things are possible with God. 
Paul said it in Ephesians. He said, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. That's why as disciples, squad goal number one is that we share our faith so we can help those who have lost hope, those individuals that are stuck on a broken down escalator, in a broken down society, in a broken down world to understand there is hope and that they too can take a first step, should take a first step, and if they do so, when they do so, they will begin a walk. Psalm 82 verse 5 says this, They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. But Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And through the Holy Spirit in us, we have a responsibility to share that to individuals so that they too can follow that path. So that they can walk and not stumble. The second person who isn't going anywhere is the one who backslides. That's an individual that set out on a journey with Christ. They took a step, maybe two, and then they stopped. They know that they're able to do it, but they refuse to do so. This individual reflects the life of a believer who is living outside the will of God. Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, to lie, and destroy. But I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. The person This person has been deceived. This person is living according to the world and according to the flesh. And again, us as disciples, we are called to live into this life, to live into this scenario. In Galatians 6.1, we read this. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path, a path where they'll have secure footing, a path where they can ultimately find clear direction. We've been called, you see, not just to begin a journey, but to finish it. And if we do so, when we do so, we can live into the words that Henry Ford once shared. Those who walk with God always reach their destination. While the first two individuals have failed to take the first step, the next individual, the person, that person is walking. That person is a Christ follower. And that person has hit full stride. They are always moving. They're always on the move, walking with God. And they always take the next step. Even though it could be challenging, even though it could be difficult, they are assured that they will arrive. They cling to verses of faith and hope, such as Isaiah 40, 31. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up their wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We don't just stand there. As Christ followers, it's not just a matter of salvation. It's also about sanctification. And sanctification is a process where we become less of ourselves and we become more and more like Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 14, we see all three individuals incorporated in the life of one person. The stage is where we all began and where we all desire to be. There was a man in Lystra who couldn't walk. He sat there crippled since the day of his birth. He heard Paul talking and Paul, looking him in the eye, saw that he was ripe for God's work. Remember that word? We're going to come back to God's work. He was ready to believe. So he said loud enough for everyone to hear, up on your feet, The man was up in a flash and jumped up 
and walked around as if he had always been walking all of his life. One pastor shared that the life of faith must never stand still for your feet, if your feet are going, you will be growing. The bottom line is this, we can't go with God and stay where we are at the same time. That would be foolishness. It would be as if we were stuck on a broken down escalator. When we walk with God, we need to know the direction, but we won't always know the destination. Take the life of Abraham. He was called to go and he set out on a journey to a land that he had never been before and that we need to be prepared for as well. We may be called to go in a direction we've never been, insecure, completely trusting and putting our faith in the Heavenly Father. But this is a great place to be. When we look at the life of Abraham, it's even more amazing because if you look back at his life, when he was called, he belonged to a family that worshiped idols. Yet he answered the call. Through him, God made a great nation. Through him, our Savior was born, that lineage. It's comforting to know that it's not where we start. It's where we finish. It's not about the baggage that you carry forward. God's grace abounds. When we set out on that journey, we also might be called to walk alone. Abraham started with a larger family, but they all did not reach the destination. His brother didn't even start. His father stopped along the way. His nephew strayed and Abraham obeyed. And he did so one step at a time. God promises to show us all the way. His word is true. Isaiah 30, 21 says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. And here's what his word entails. Here's how we hear that discernible voice today. In Deuteronomy, and Amber, you want to come forward. In Deuteronomy, it says this, so now Israel what do you think God expects from you? Just this, live in his presence in holy reverence. Follow the road he sets out for you. Love him, serve God, your God, with everything you have in you. And that brings us to squad goal number three. We submit to serving. Now I've asked Amber to come forward and help me with the demonstration. She does not know what she's uh, coming forth to do, so she, uh, and, but she didn't flinch, and I appreciate that very much. So uh, it involves money, Amber, and I need yours. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, no, here's what we're going to do. What I wanted to explain is this. We have no chance of hitting the goal unless we have our eyes on the target. And so Amber's going to need a little bit more of your encouragement, but I'll tell you this. Here are all these white Southwinds pens that are donated to us, but in the middle of them, I'm placing one green pin in the middle of these white pins. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to toss these into the air. And Amber, I want you to catch the green pin. Out of all these, I want you to grab the green pin, okay? So I have a little encouragement for Amber, please, this morning. So, all right. All right. I'm going to toss them just about your eye level, maybe a little bit higher, okay? Well, you're specific. Okay, ready? All right, green pen. Here we go. Three, two, one. Thank you. You don't need to get those. I get those. Oh, hey, a second. Hey, Amber. 
for helping this morning. Some thank you, Jelly Bellies. Thank you very much. So, all right. Thank you very much. Hey, here's the point. You know, all those other pens, those are distractions. Those are the world. Those are everything that happens. If we keep our eye on the goal, that's the only way that we have a chance to get the green pen. And that is something that all of us, unprepared, all of us can do. The one who calls you, it says in 1 Thessalonians 5.24, is faithful. Why? He will do it. He will do it. We just need to keep our eyes on the goal. With that, we move forward into we submit for serving. It says in John chapter 5, Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So guess what we're going to be called to do? There is work for us to do as we walk. God's not looking for supervisors. He's not in that business. He's looking for workers. That's what he's in the market for. Each of us have been called to work. Colossians says this, as you learn more and more how God works, you will learn how to do your work. We each have a responsibility. The key then is for us to be obedient. And the biggest impediment to that is ourselves. We have a natural tendency to be lazy, to take it easy. I looked not too long ago, and there's still, believe it or not, six people living from the 1800s. Six people. Now, besides the fact that they're all women, the only other common denominator as they studied these women was this. They all remained active. And yet, our society always wants to encourage us and promotes a life of ease, a life of comfort. I, I will always remember my father one day saying, as I was a child, the day I'm too lazy to get up, walk across the room, and turn the channel on the TV is the day I should die. <laughs> and yet I know in this room there's people that have not lived before remotes were in existence. That's all they ever knew. Last week, raise your hand if you saw this, Nike came out with self-lacing tennis shoes. Anybody see that? All right, a few people saw that. Well, to back up what I'm saying, to support my comments, here's a few other products that have been designed to help us to assume a life of ease. Ab Enhancer. You don't have to do sit-ups anymore, no crunches. You just put on this framework, this grill, like a corset, and tighten it up, and you too can have the proverbial six-pack. How about the next one? This might not be as obvious. Those are patches on an eyelid to make it appear that you're awake and paying attention when you're really sleeping. <laughs> Employers would love this one. The next one, the self-twirling fork for spaghetti. Thank God we no longer have to go through the exhausting process of twirling the fork ourselves. We can have an object God designed an object that can take that workload from us, that yoke from our shoulders. And finally, put your pets to work. You don't need to clean your floor. The pets should be cleaning your floor. For the animal rights people out there, I apologize. I just know that in the debate, somebody's going to criticize the other person and say, you even make your pet clean your floor. So anyway... What I want you to know is that I always work hard. I take it very seriously. I'm always to the test. And uh, I should check my slides because uh, somebody knows how to Photoshop. And that's actually me that they put on that slide right there. So, all right. So it seems today that it's countercultural to have a good work ethic. All right. But what does God's word say? It says this, 2 Timothy 
Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. If we're going to work for the Lord, if we're going to serve him, then we need to study the word. One of our church members told me recently that they had a family member. They don't attend this church, but they had a family member that told them this. I don't need to read the Bible. If it's important enough to know, the priest will tell me. Martin Luther said this. It is pure invention that Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate. And there is, no, there is among them no difference at all but that of office. There is really no difference between layman and priest except that of office and work. That includes pastors. It's the same thing. It's not about our position. You don't have to go to seminary in order to understand God's word. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit rested on individuals at different times. Today, when we profess our faith in Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit resides within us. And within us is able to interpret the scriptures for us. Look at what Paul said. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we may understand, underline understand, that we may understand what God has freely given us, his word. Pastor Mike is a great teacher. We are so blessed to have him at Southwinds. But even he said this last week, listening to sermons is not enough. And I'll give you two reasons why. Number one, it is impossible for us to cover everything about a topic in one worship service. And number two, we're not supposed to. You are supposed to check it out for yourself. Acts says this in chapter 17. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Examine the scriptures every day. He reveals the truth so we can live into the truth and so that we can express it. But that's just a beginning. A worker, a worker doesn't just need to be knowledgeable. They need to put that knowledge to work. Judas heard all of Christ's sermons and how'd that work out? It takes a little bit more. In Ephesians, we read this, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do what? To do good works, which God gave us in advance to do. Our work is our ministry, and our ministry is equivalent of serving. In fact, the term Christian, the term Christian means this. It's defined as a servant of the gospel. You can't separate it. You cannot be a Christian and not serve. They go hand in hand. It's impossible to separate. A Christian serves. 1 John 3.19 says our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. We aren't just called to be check writers. We aren't just called to be pew sitters. Those are important roles, but we're called to do more. We are called to serve. And Jesus said in John 17.4, I brought you glory on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Shouldn't that also be our quest to bring glory to God on this earth by finishing the work that he gave us to do by being a servant of the gospel? There's three types of serving that exist. First, there's self-serving. We don't need to even work at that one. I do that one really well. It comes naturally. 
One way that we are self-serving is we're that way intentionally. I mean, there's songs written about it. The Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. Probably the first time in a while the Rolling Stones have been quoted in a church service, so maybe write that down as well. But it's really true. There was a survey done in 1900, and it asked the question, and it said, what did people feel like they needed in order to function normally and be content? And there were 72 items that were identified at that time. 50 years later, the same question was asked, and nearly 500 things were listed. I can't imagine how many things would be listed today. I probably can't count that high. But the Bible says there are only two things that we need. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. There's also our unintentional ways that we are self-serving. We set out with good motives, but we went the wrong direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 says, knowledge puffs up while love builds up. It's not just about knowing. That produces a pridefulness. If the toolbox is the word of God, then the most important tool that we have at our disposal is love. And that requires action. What, the, what does the word say about the subject of love? Many of us in our wedding vows or at weddings have heard 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It begins in verse 4. It's the love chapter. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. That's not who we're called to be. That's manipulation if we're self-seeking. It's love if we want nothing but just to give of ourselves. It's a matter of our motivation. Instead, we're to follow the attitude of Christ. And we read the attitude of Christ in Philippians 2. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider everyone better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Like Father Damien. Father Damien was a Catholic priest. And in 1864, he joined a mission outreach to the Hawaiian Islands. The very next year, the Hawaiian legislature passed legislation called an act to prevent the spread of leprosy. Beginning in 1866, all the way through 1969, people with this condition were put in medical quarantine on a peninsula called Kalalapa. Isolated and without proper resources, it basically became the equivalent of a penal colony. Its poor conditions could not be overstated. In 1873, Father Damien answered the call and became the first volunteer to become a missionary to the 816 lepers that were living there at that time. Six months later, after arriving at this dismal place, he wrote these words to his brother. I make myself a leper with the lepers to gain all to Jesus Christ. Historians believe that Father Damien was a catalyst for a turning point in that settlement. Under his leadership, they established working farms. He took shacks and upgraded them to homes. He established schools 
and he touched lives for eternity. He gave himself up for his community, figuratively and literally touching the lives of the individuals that he chose to love, all the while knowing that he would set into motion the consequences that would become his conclusion. And on April 15th in 1889, at the age of 49, Father Damien went to be with the Lord, dying from complications that arose from the disease of leprosy, which he contracted. See, a servant of the gospel requires a selfless predisposition. It's the anecdote to self-centeredness. It's our faith in the Lord that allows us to look outside of ourselves. And we're encouraged when we read in the Psalms, chapter 145, we read this. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. He knows what you need and he knows when you need it. Not when we think we need it, but when you actually need it. And it's that confidence we have, that trust that we place in our Lord that allows us to minister to others. Second type of serving is serving the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says this, there are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. Galatians 1.10 says, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I still trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, then I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. See, true service always follows true worship. And the Holy Spirit in us, that resides within us, empowers us for the love of Christ and enables us to serve others. The great commandment is clear. There is no loving God without loving people. You have to love both. Jesus provides the example of so many things on how to live our life because he walked the road for us first. He was tested. He was tempted. He suffered. Guess what? We have a model of how to live our life and a comfort in knowing that he is there when we are tested, when we are tempted, when we suffer, and he served. Mark 10.45 makes it avidly clear. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Probably the number one enemy against serving, us serving, is our busyness. And yet you look at the scripture and Jesus time and time again allowed himself to be interrupted. We need to be able to do the same thing. It's like when I watched my grandkids. I love my grandkids, but my grandkids are one constant interruption. Any amens from any grandparents? They're constant. I mean, my wife and I took a week off. We served. We went in. My daughter sold me on the fact that they slept into 5.30. That was a lie. They woke up at 4.15 in the morning. At the time we did this, they were one and change, almost two, and they're three and change. And I remember coming down one morning at 4.15, everything seemed to be going well. So I told my wife at 5.30, well, I'm going to go for a run if everything's good here. She said, looks good. Went upstairs, came back down. There's my wife with an object in her hand. And she says, whose poop is this? <laughs> and immediately I said, it's not mine. <laughs> I just want you to know. The three-year-old also said, not hers. So we pretty much had an idea what it was. So I took, like this, the one-year-old up the stairs to change the one-year-old. He had blown out his diaper. I mean, it was nasty. And I just, 
And, and his pajamas were, I just threw the pajamas away. I didn't even worry about it. I said, I'll buy a new pair of pajamas, but that's interruption. That's, uh, and that's love. So I'm thankful for so many things. And one of them I'm thankful for is their potty train now. So, but, but listen, inopportune means missed opportunity if we don't, if we fail to act, if we don't take advantage of it. Doulos is a Greek term and it means slave. And I want you to know it's used 150 times in the New Testament. It doesn't mean servant. It doesn't mean helper. It doesn't mean worker. Here's what it means. It means an unconditional subjection to another. And in those days, it was a title of honor. And when we look at that, we understand that most of our translations don't say slave. They've watered it down because there's a stigma attached to the word. But should there be a stigma attached to the word when it's attached to Jesus? In Philippians 2, 7, you read that Jesus is described as a slave. He set aside the privileges of deity and took on the status of a slave. And when I see that, I'm encouraged that if I'm going to be submitted to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be a slave for Christ that I want to know and I want you to know we join an awesome team of Christ followers, an awesome team of doulases. In scripture, you read these. You read Peter is described as doulos. Jude, James, Paul. And in Revelation 1.1 it says this, John and all true followers are doulases. We serve non-believers and we're called to serve believers. We're called to serve in our professional lives, in our personal lives, whoever God puts on our path, wherever it might be, it's not by chance, it's not by accident. We have a job to do and we serve through our church. Serving others, everyone, everywhere, every day and it begins at home. Husbands and wives. Ephesians says this, place yourselves under each other's authority. That sounds an awful lot like the definition of doulos. The rest of the verse says this. Why? Out of respect for Christ. See, when we serve our wives, when we're slaves to our husbands, when we do that, we're honoring Christ. Children do not get exemption from this as well. In chapter 6 of Ephesians, it says, Obey your parents. Because why? Because you belong to the Lord. It's our act of service to Him. We serve others in our community, and there's opportunities that abound if we just will pay attention. Like the one night at 11.30 p.m. when an older black woman was standing on the side of an Alabama highway enduring a downpour, a lashing storm. Her car had broken down and she needed assistance. She decided to flag someone down and she was desperate for a ride. A young white man came along to help her, something that was kind of unheard of in the conflict days of the 1960s in Alabama. The young man put her into, uh, uh, drove her to safety. He helped her with what she needed to have done and he put her in a taxi cab. She seemed to be in a hurry, but she paused long enough to say thank you and also write down his address. A week went by and the young man was surprised when a knock came on his door and he opened the door and a delivery man brought in a new, huge, giant, color console TV with a note that was attached to it. And the note read this. Thank you so much for assisting me on the highway the other night. The rain drenched not only my clothes, but my spirits. 
Then you came along. Because of you, I was able to make it to my dying husband's bedside just before he passed away. God bless you for helping me and unselfishly serving others. Sincerely, Mrs. Nat King Cole. We serve others through our church. You know what the three most asked questions at Disney are? The first two probably won't surprise you. Number one, where are the bathrooms? Very good. There's a mom. I know that had to be a mom's voice. Number two, where is Mickey? Where's Mickey? That's number two. Okay, you didn't do so well on that one, okay? Number three, I'm just going to tell you. Number three is, when is the three o'clock parade? I kid you not. That's the number three question asked at Disney is when is the three o'clock parade? I figure even a former football coach can figure that one out. You know, what's the saying? Um, There's no such thing as dumb questions, just dumb people that ask them. No, it's a... But Disney has a different approach to answering that question. They always answer in great detail. And here's what they say. Here's what you're going to want to do. At about 2.30, you want to go to this corner, and we recommend you stand there. Because at that corner, there's some shade. So it tends to be hot that time of day. That'll give you some cloud cover. Also, at the same time, the way the sun is positioned, you'll be able to take pictures if you want to photograph the parade, because the sun is in the perfect position for that. Also, right at that location, there are restrooms there. So if anybody in your family needs to use them, they're available to you. And on the other side of you, there's a refreshment stand. So if you're thirsty, you have that. That's how they respond to that question. See, service begins with respecting people. And as we look at that and I listen, I know that as a church, those we entertain, they're either guests or they're family. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, it's a culture. Disney promotes people. They reward people because they have more value the more that they serve. And as a church, really, shouldn't we be called to even a higher standard than that? The greater the love and respect amongst a team, the greater the team. Warren Wiersbe said this, Love is the circulatory system of the spiritual body which enables all the members to function in a healthy, harmonious way. The writer of Hebrews says this, For God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for other believers as you still do. Finally, we serve others in our places of employment, at our work. And I want it to be clear that the one who writes your check is not who you work for. Okay? You are employed, many of you, in a secular environment. But you work for the Lord and you serve Him there. It's more important. It's about your calling. It's about your purpose. It's not about a career. It's not about occupation. It's not about location. It's about serving God. And as we look at a verse in Ephesians, we read this. And underline or circle every time in this passage that you read the word slave or you read the word serve. Do losses. Obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, not only to win their favor when their eyes are on you, but like do losses of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does. See, serving the Lord is not a sacrifice. It's an investment. 
And I just met with our financial planner this past week. First of all, I can't retire. That's the bad news. Uh, The second thing is this, is that what investment could you possibly make where you are 100% assured a return of an investment that will not deplete? Jesus says this, anyone who knows or wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. There's three questions I felt led to ask today. I felt in the best of my ability, this is what God is asking me to share. Biblical scholars say there's approximately 3,300 questions contained in the Bible. But these are the three. Number one, where are you? This is the first question that God asks in the Bible. It's in Genesis 3.9. And it's during the period of time when, after original sin, Adam and Eve are out hiding from God. Good luck with that one. Where are you? (laughs) You know, Ray Ortland says this, the Christian who is not committed to a group of other believers for praying, sharing, and serving so that he is known as he knows others is not an obedient Christian. He is not in the will of God. However vocal he may be in his theology, he is not obeying the Lord. Psalm 103.21 makes it clear. It says this, his servants do his will. A father and a son were on their way to church one Sunday morning when they came around a curve and a giant limb from a tree had fallen onto the road. The father swerved, made the car miss the object and started to continue on their way when the son said this, somebody should really move that limb. It's going to cause an accident for somebody else. The father immediately slammed on his brakes, looked at his son and said, who are you? Aren't you someone? Get out and move the limb. And the son obliged. Sounds like my dad. But the heavenly father, like the earthly father, asks the same question. This is scriptural. Who shall I send? Shouldn't our answer always be, here I am, send me? And the third question I'm led to ask today is this. It's from 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 9, where Elijah is asked this. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? Elijah had been a faithful man. But a servant of God, as a servant of God at this point, when he was asked this question, he was hundreds of miles hiding in a cave away from where he was called and appointed to ministry. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time. So the question that I echo is this. Are you where you are supposed to be today? Or are you attempting to hide and shirk your responsibilities. Are you working while you're walking in obedience to the Heavenly Father? Or are you stuck on a broken down escalator? It's been said that there's three stages of life. There's learn, there's earn, and return. But they're really not stages because they all happen simultaneously. And as Christ followers, our church, our mission statement is this. We exist to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And I would be doing you a disservice and my God and an injustice if we aren't working together as pastors to promote opportunities for you to be able to live into that, for you to be able to take next steps and hit your full stride as fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. This is what we're called to do. So 
I looked at it and I said, these are opportunities that I'm going to share. And this morning, as I was preparing for this message, God put on my heart, they're not opportunities, they're obligations. You still don't get it, Jay. The opportunities say, I have a choice. If I'm a slave to Jesus Christ, if I'm doulos, that means I have responsibilities. I have tasks. I have things that I'm going to be called to account for one day on that throne, and I want to give the right answer at that point in time. So here are some of those. If you haven't taken part in these, here are some of those today, those next steps that you can take. Number one, you can learn And it just so happens, God's awesome. When this message was coordinated with our calendar, our calendar set up Discovery 301 a year ago, we set the calendar, a year ago. And the calendar all of a sudden, two weeks beforehand, we're talking on serving. That's not a coincidence. That's God speaking to somebody here, maybe multiple people I'm confident of. Now we ask people to go to 101, and we like it when you go through the bases in order, but hey, get to Discovery 301. Learn how God has called you to serve. 1 Peter 4.10 says this, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. These aren't my words, but I carry an awesome responsibility to make sure I share what he puts in my heart. Second thing is return. We return in one way through our inreach. And I want to pause for a moment and say that we have many wonderful people that are volunteers And we thank you so much for your service to the church and to the kingdom. Let me remind you, the church is what? The body. The church is what? The bride of Christ. Who is Jesus coming back for? He's coming back for the church. So we have a responsibility as believers, as Christ followers, as members of this family to take care of the bride of Christ until his return or to pass it on to the next generation better than we found it. It typically takes us 185 people in order to undergird the worship services every Sunday morning, and we need help. We have openings that are available right now. We have opportunities for you to step forward and do this. You know, we're building a new worship center that's going to house 700 people. This house is 400 in here. Do we really believe that God is going to entrust us with an additional 300 more people if we're not taking care of the people that we have? If we're not stepping up and doing the things that we need to have? I personally think, and I think it's uh, established in God's word, is God does not act until we step out by faith. When we have the things in place, I think he'll say, now I'll entrust you with my children. Now I'll bring you my sons and daughters. On the back of your connect card, If you're not currently volunteering, we make it easy. It's usually one time a month, approximately about an hour, one time a month to serve. And let me guarantee you, you get more from it than you ever possibly think you're going to give. Number two is outreach opportunities are how we can return. One of those is internal. Guess what's coming up? Christmas, Easter. You already know that these are the most well-attended church services each year. And we always look for additional people to help us. This year, can I challenge you out of love and respect to not be an attender, but be a participant. Make a difference for those people that are going to cross the threshold, maybe for the first time. We have uh, external uh, opportunities as well. One of them I want to tell you about today is called Least of These. If you haven't heard about it, it's a wonderful ministry. It's an extension of Southwinds Church. This ministry reaches into our community to work with the homeless, 
and the addicted. And since they were established in 2010, 65 individuals have been broken and recovered from addiction and homelessness. 25 individuals have been baptized, accepted Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. It's doing significant things. They provide meals. They provide Christian counseling. They provide clothing. And they do so much more. They need individuals to carry on this ministry. And it's one Saturday per month is what they ask for. At Dr. Powers Park. And today, out in the courtyard, when you leave, there's going to be a table set up. It's under one of the tents or the pop-ups out there. And there'll be individuals that represent the ministry that'll be there to answer questions for you or to sign you up. It costs nothing to have a conversation. I think of Abraham, and I go back to kind of where we started this. Abraham prayed at one point in time for Sodom. And he said, Lord, if there's 50 righteous people there, would you spare that city? And God said, I'll spare it for 50. And then Abraham, what about 45? Would you really destroy it for 45? He said, I will not destroy it for 45. And that continued on to 10. Now, ultimately, God couldn't find 10, and the rest is history. But what that put in my heart is this. If you today could know, he numbers our days. We don't know how many we have. But if you could know today that dedicating one day in your life would bring somebody to that saving grace, would you do it? That's a rhetorical question. 24 hours. Is it worth it? What about if I said 12 hours? 12 hours. Would you give 12 hours of your life if you knew that it would ensure someone's eternity? What about six? One quarter of one day. And finally, what about two? Two hours. Is there anybody here that couldn't possibly spare two hours for that purpose, for that mission? Now, this is a loaded question. I just want you to know because I want to tell you about the harvest party. The harvest party. (laughs) I'm in all seriousness, though. I want to tell you, it's not like uh, past harvest parties. They've been wonderful, and they focused on the children. We're expanding that. You know how many people come onto this campus for the harvest party in the past? Between 1,200 to 1,500 people come out here to the church. Do you know what an opportunity that is? For us, we're doing things a little bit differently this year. We're still going to maintain the wonderful experience that has been for our children, but we want to reach teenagers as well. We believe by doing that, we can reach 1,500 to 2,000 people this year. But here's where you come in. You know who's done a lot of the serving, a lot of the volunteering for the Harvest Party in the past? Teenagers, exactly. If our teenagers are going to reach other teenagers. Why is that important, you might ask? Statistics say that of adults, 94% of adults become Christ followers before the age of 18. I think you might know that. So what's that mean? We need to reach them now, before they're off to college, before they leave the household. We need to help establish roots that are truly going to feed them and nourish them, not just for this lifetime, but for eternity. So we need your help. We're asking every adult. I'm asking every adult. Nobody's asked me to say this. And Pastor Mike's not here, so I can say anything I want today. (laughs) I'm asking on behalf of you, on behalf of kids, 
that are out there two hours that day to make a difference so our teenagers can cultivate and reach those other teenagers that are on broken down escalators. Not just for the adults to take a next step. For some, it's going to be a next step. For some, it's going to be a first step. But for all of us, it's going to be stepping up for the next generation. Did you know the only uh, miracle that's listed in all four Gospels is the fish and the loaves, the feeding of the 5,000. It's the only one that's mentioned in all four. And I think one of the reasons why is this, and this is what I get from at least today, is this. He broke the bread. He distributed to his disciples. What did they do? They served the people. And they brought back more. Here's the principle that we've got to understand and live into today. When we serve, he multiplies. I leave you with this. I saw a group of men in my hometown, a group of men tearing a building down. With a heave and hoe and a mighty yell, they swung the beam and the sidewall fell. And I said to the foreman, are these men skilled, the kind you'd hire if you wanted to build? And he laughed and replied, why no indeed, common labor is all I need, for I can tear down in a day or two what it took a builder 10 years to do. I thought to myself as I walked away, which of these roles do I wish to play? Am I the type that is carelessly tearing down as I make my way foolishly around? Or am I the kind that is building with care in hopes that my family, my community, my church will be glad that I'm there? Folks, we're here for a season and we're here for a reason. And we're here to serve. As the ushers come forward, I want to mention that we We return through our service and we also return a portion of the financial gifts that God has entrusted into our care. At Southwinds, there's two ways that we give. We give of our tithes. We give that 10% of our income that we get and we also give to NextGen. NextGen is a spiritual initiative designed to grow invest and reach the next generation for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity. We recognize the obligation. It is a privilege, Lord, to serve you where you've called us to be for a time such as this. And Father, may we answer the call. May we answer the call today. May we be fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ and answer the call each and every day that you give us that we can make a difference in our Jerusalem, Mountain House, Tracy, Lathrop, Manteca, and the surrounding vicinity and throughout the world. Father, we love you. We ask that you would bless these offerings, these finances that are devoted to the future, to what comes after us, all with the knowledge, all with the hope, all with the anticipation that by keeping our eye on you, we will one day hear, well done, thy good and faithful Dolas. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.